0: We are going to roll up our sleeves, ladies and gents, and get right to work this morning in God's Word. I recently finished a book, Getting Into Guinness, Uh, Getting Into Guinness by a guy named Larry Olmstead. The Guinness Book of World Records uh, is the best-selling copyrighted book of all time. You might say, hey, what about the Bible? Well, the Bible, never copyrighted. We had the Guinness Book of World Records, made a lot, a lot, a lot of money, and it's basically made all this money and achieved this goal of being the best-selling copyrighted book of all time on the backs of 8 to 14-year-old boys, right? Uh, if you are an 8 to 14-year-old boy, or you have been an 18 to 14-year-old boy, all right, there's a, probably a 90% chance you have this book, or have had this book, or your parents bought it for you, all right? I mean... I had my sister-in-law in town this last week and uh, she was telling me the story how they were at this, this big festival thing. They'd been three years in a row and her, she couldn't find her boys anywhere and usually they're causing trouble and stuff like that. She found four of them sitting on this big sofa just looking at like the world's tallest man and the freaky lady with the big fingernails and you know that sort of thing. Kids love it. It's a small demographic, that age group. But, you know, if everyone owns it, a pretty good deal for the company. The most prolific world record holder, probably in the Guinness Book of World Records, is a guy named Ashrita Furman. Uh, I read about this guy, it's actually in the second chapter of this book. Among the dozens and dozens and dozens, I mean well over 100 uh, world records that this guy holds, my favorite, it was a tough call, my favorite is, the, <laughs> is that he has pogo-sticked up Mount Fuji. Alright, and he's actually, he's actually done it twice. Alright, that's right. At Pogo Stick, up Mount Fuji. Now, this is pretty remarkable, right? First of all, this is one of the wonderful things about these records, is that they're not only remarkable in their feats, but how do they actually think of these things? Like, they have to have some sort of imagination to figure these things out. And... They're pretty hilarious, if you think about it. I mean, imagine being the first time, you're visiting Japan, you know, you're going to Mount Fuji, you're at the base, now, and here comes this guy with his Nissan hatchback, takes out of the trunk a pogo stick, and starts hopping along, and he looks at you with that stare, his teeth are gritted together, and says, move out of the way. And he actually starts trekking up the mountain. I mean, I just think that would be funny. Anyway, I'm fascinated with these stories. You can tell I like talking about them. Fascinated with the stories, specifically stories about what motivates people, what makes them tick, you know, especially when it comes to doing these great, big feats. And what was interesting is I read in this book the common thread for all these people it's basically each one of them in some way wanted to leave a legacy. They wanted themselves and their name to be etched right in a book that will be released every year and be around far after you know, they die. Now, this makes sense. Even biblically this makes sense as the second most famous Jewish king in all of history, King Solomon, said in his second most famous book right? Ecclesiastes, wonderful book. God has put eternity in the hearts of men. God has put eternity in the hearts of men. There's something about a legacy. There's something about carrying on beyond this world that's attractive to every person. Whether they're hardened, whether they care about God or not. Every person cares about their legacy. Of course, there is one book in which names will be etched that will far outlast that of the Guinness Book of World Records, spoken about in a book many of you have read in your community groups this week, in the book of Revelation, where the Apostle John has this vision. In Revelation 20, verse 12, he says this, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Skipping ahead to verse 15. He says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life. One book will certainly outlast them all. You cannot get your name etched in this book through some great feats of strength or creativity, or even through regular, small, mundane feats of everyday life. If you want your name in this book, God has to justify you. The judge, the judge has to declare you right with him and his law. Something called justification. And that's our big word for living this morning. If you're you're just with us this week, um, the Bible has some big words, right? That when first reading, you think, hey, those words are good for preachers, maybe for people who go to seminary, or just really, really old people, right? Who don't speak my language. But, in reality, these words are crucial, crucial for each Christian in everyday faith, because what you believe eventually will determine how you live. And that's what we've been talking about in this series. What you believe eventually determines how you live. So turn with me, if you would, to Romans 4. We're going to look at Romans 4 this morning. What we're going to do, just so you can follow along, first we're going to define justification. All right, another big word again. Then we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about it. And finally, why it matters for living. Justification is to declare a person righteous so that there is a permanent and legal change to the relationship to God. There's a permanent and legal change to the relationship with God. Alright? Once, not right with God. Once enemies, now right with Him. Justification, diaiaku, in the Greek, is a forensic or legal term. All right The only difference is, in this court, God is the judge, the jury, and He's also your lawyer. All right, so you pretty much got one place you can go to. All right If you have any complaints, you've got to go to God. All right? And in a moment, what we're going to see in Romans four. It's that there's a word that's often used with uh, justify. So you actually get two words this morning for the price of one. This is pretty exciting, right? There's another word, righteous. Righteous actually comes from the same root, Greek root, as justify. So they're very closely related. I want to just explain the difference. I know this is going to get technical for a moment here, but I want to explain the difference so we understand before we get into this passage, all right? Righteousness you can think of as the goal. The goal is to become right with God. To get a righteousness that makes us right with Him. The legal act that achieves this goal, that permanently achieves this goal, is justification. Alright, so this act has to happen for this to to go down. So this morning, we're going to talk about justification. And if you remember nothing else this morning, remember this. In a nutshell, justification satisfies Perhaps our greatest need and combats perhaps our greatest enemy. We're especially going to talk about how it combats perhaps our greatest enemy this morning. So we're going to look at Romans 4 in part this week. And as we move on and talk about faith, we'll be looking at Romans 4 as well. So Romans 4 verses 1 through 13. Read with me if you would. In other words, was it for Jews and Gentiles or just Jews who were circumcised at this point? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he performed this action of circumcision? It was not after but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Uh, he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be the heir of the world. First of all, real quick on that. The promise that Abraham put his faith in is that he would have as many descendants as there were stars in the heavens. Even though he was very, very old and had no children at this point. So the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be heir of the world. Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is Your Word. And we're told in Your Word that faith comes from hearing. But the hearing comes from the Word of God. The best kind of hearing comes from the Word of God. And so this morning, Lord, we would ask that Your Word would produce faith in us. That it would produce a deepened trust in who You are and who You're calling us to be. In Jesus' name, Amen. So justification combats perhaps our greatest enemy legalism All right, there's some big enemies in the Christian faith probably bigger we got sin and Satan when you start walking out the Christian life though probably a close third is this legalism we're going to talk about that this morning Um, let's start start though in verses 1 through 8 where Paul is basically saying in these verses you have a choice you have a choice In terms of getting right with God and what you think will work best. Now Abraham, he was a good man. You, you're probably, I'm looking out there, I know some of you guys, you're a pretty good person. So, you have a choice. Like Abraham, you could be judged by your works and get your due. As Scripture says, or get what's coming to you. Get what you deserve. Right? Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, right? And he says that the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is righteousness. So you can be judged by your works and get your due, or you can rely on Jesus' works and get his due. That's essentially the choice before us, as we talk about this this morning. If you trust Jesus... His righteousness is legally counted, or your translation may say, "be credited to your account." That word count or "credited," logizomai, is basically where we get the word "logic." It's a firm logic. It is a official, permanent credit to your account. Now, each of you guys should have a bulletin. Everybody have a bulletin. hey hi. There you go. Now, uh, we're going to do a little activity here. I want you to make two columns in this bulletin, all right? uh, My works on the left-hand column, Jesus' works in the right-hand column. All right, pretty simple. My works, Jesus' works. And what I want you to do, we're going to take a minute or so here. In the left-hand column, fill out some good works, some works done by you in recent memory, all right? And in the right column, I want you to fill out some works that you know of that Jesus has done. You may begin. All right, now I, I realize you can't. You probably haven't done this in full. Maybe hopefully you get the idea. I want to just share with you what I wrote down that I've been able to magically now help appear on the screen. Yes, there it goes. All right, here's what I wrote down. Alright, on my uh, back of my sermon notes here. And by the way, I know you guys use these sermon notes, so don't take up the whole space because you've got to write some of this down. But my works, alright, I helped a person with their bags this week. Alright, some luggage, I helped back, you know, it was very, very nice. Uh, I prayed with some people. Uh, I helped out extra with our boys this week and with chores, extra chores around the house. Uh, Katie's sister was in town, I wanted to give her some extra time. You know, and I wrote a couple of encouraging notes to people, you know, like, hey, I appreciate you kind of notes. Now, for me, look, this is a good week, all right? Uh, You guys are probably like, oh, this is any normal week for me. me, This is like, this is, I'm doing all right, okay? Um, Now, you compare this, then, to Jesus' works. Here's what I wrote down for Jesus' works. He healed the sick, the demonized. He gave up extra time and rights with the Father to put on this costume of flesh I come in here to the earth. Forgave, forgave, forgave. He loved even when hated. And then, of course, there was the work of the cross. He endured judgment and wrath that I deserved. And I'll add one more in there. He fulfilled the entire Old Testament. All right, All the works of the Old Testament, all the law of the Old Testament. So the, those are some of the works. Now you look at your left column and look at the right column, right? Whose works would you rather have To put before the Father. Alright. Whose works would really probably please and impress the Father. Common sense. Kind of tells us Jesus. Right. I mean even if you just look at it from just a very common sense point of view. Jesus. Didn't just save us from our sins. But he saved us from our works. It's important. and, And really revolutionary for me. Jesus didn't just save us from our sins. But he saved us from our works. or really lack thereof by crediting His works, His righteousness, to our account. That might help us and make sense of this verse. I don't know if you've read this verse before. Romans 5.10 where Paul says, If while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? I've always looked at that and said, what does that mean? Like I'm going to be saved more? What he's saying is, Through the death of Jesus, our sin is canceled out. But through his perfect obedience and righteousness in life, it's not only a canceling out of a debt, it's crediting to our account Jesus' works, his righteousness. It's like the bank account that goes from no debt, which is awesome, to the millions and millions of dollars that suddenly appear in the Swiss bank account. Love it, right? Jesus not only saves us from our sin, but also from our works. I have a, um, I have a large baseball card collection. Now, I don't know if you guys are familiar with baseball cards. I know a number of us come from different places around the world. Basically, baseball cards, hopefully you're familiar with baseball. I don't want to have to explain that. It's a game. People pitch. There's a wooden bat. We all get that. Alright, and when I was a kid, you'd go and get, purchase these cards in a grocery store. They came in these little packs, and they had these individual players on them, and they were like doing something great, like hitting the ball or posing like this, right? And then they'd have their statistics on the back, like how great they've done in the last few years. And What you wanted to do, you wanted to get a card of a really good player, but you didn't know. Like you'd open the pack, there'd be some stale gum in there, and you'd get these cards, and you'd be like, that guy stinks, that guy stinks, that guy stinks. Yes, I got a good player. Now, I have boxes of these things, all right? Definitely kind of, yeah, I used to say they were a good investment, but no, not really. Uh, and one of the more valuable cards I have, all right, is this $100, uh, I think it's worth about $100, Future Stars card, all right? It's when these players have just come into the major leagues, all right? And they're young, they're rookies. And there are three players on the front of this card, and I want to tell you about them. The first is Jeff Schneider. Alright, Jeff Schneider played one year of baseball, Uh, he pitched in 11 games, and he gave up 13 earned runs, he basically played 11 games, nothing spectacular, alright, you know, didn't hardly play a year. Second player is Bob Bonner, who played four years of baseball, appeared in 61 games, he had eight runs batted in, zero home runs. That's not real impressive, I think you can at least tell that, alright. The third future star played 21 years for the Baltimore Orioles. He appeared in 3,001 games. Uh, he came to bat 1, 000, oh, sorry, 11,551 times, collected 3,184 hits, had 431 home runs, and batted in 1,695 runs. His name is Cal Ripken Jr. Guy's in the Hall of Fame. He's a great player. And he's a good-looking dude. I mean, I don't mean I don't, I don't mind saying that. All right. So uh, now imagine, now imagine you meet Bob Bob Bruner up here one day. Right, Bob Bonner. He shakes your hand, and he says, uh, "I don't know if you know this, kind of a little known fact, but uh, my baseball card it's worth uh, it's worth about a hundred dollars." Right. Oh, what if he says this to you? What would you do? If he knew anything, you'd, you'd, you'd laugh. You're like, yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh, and that was because of you, right? No, it was not, of course. Uh, The card had nothing to do with him. And its value had nothing to do with him. Well, friends, this is how it is when we come to Christ. And we point to our good works. "Ah, I'm a pretty good person. Our statistics. And we ask, hey, is this good enough? Is this good enough? If you want to hold up your stats to God, you don't have a chance. But when you put your faith in Christ... His statistics become yours. And you're worth a lot more because of someone else's stats, because of what someone else has done. Do you see this? The rest of this passage in Romans 4, though, kind of gets to the question, do we really have a choice? Do we really have a choice? Because it seems like, when I read the Bible, it says, yeah, I'm made right with God by both my works and my faith. All right, how do I really come right with him but, but my works and my faith? When I really read the Bible that's what it seems like. And that's why Paul writes verses 9 through 11. Is this blessing for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. It says this all the way back in Genesis. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after but before. Abraham. He was the perfect guy to point to if you wanted to make a point about religion at this point when Paul was writing you, got, you wanted to point to the dude I mean the man of the Jewish faith and that was Abraham he was like the godfather of the Jewish faith with, with Yahweh being the father we'll give Abraham the godfather right uh, he started essentially the Jewish nation so it was pretty wise of Paul to point to him and say look even this guy was made righteous by faith now Jews and those familiar with the Jewish religion pointed to I looked at some research on this, pointed to two supreme achievements by Abraham. Two big things that he did that were celebrated. The first was circumcision. Abraham didn't just have faith, he had these works. He he performed the action of circumcision. Which may not seem like a big deal to us right now, but it's kind of a big deal, especially as he was the first person to become circumcised, right? That's a big act of obedience, right? Imagine, imagine God handing him the knife, right? Imagine his look, well, what do you, I mean, duh, ah, right, yeah, I don't even know, what, what is this? What am I doing? Right? I know that could be awkward to think about, but Paul's point here is that Abraham's trust in God was counted to him as righteousness before he performed this action. You see that? So there's that action, but there's another big one that Jews and those familiar with the faith would have pointed to as a major action. That's when Abraham was willing to give up his only son, Isaac, in Genesis 22. Alright? Abraham didn't just have faith. Look what he was willing to do. What he was willing to do, sacrifice. But again, happened after he was credited with righteousness by faith. See, neither acts would have made Abe right with God. Neither act, but these actions were evidence of his faith. Thinking that you are officially right with God through what you do is legalism. And legalism, friends, is so deadly to the Christian faith. I can't emphasize it enough. It's so deadly. And one of the reasons it's so deadly is because it looks so much like the real thing. It looks so much like real, genuine Christianity. Let's talk about this. Legalism. What is it? How does it work? Essentially, we can think of legalism like this, in this equation. A real Christian is putting your faith in Jesus plus something else. By putting your faith in Jesus and doing something else, you have favor with God. You gain favor with God. He saves you, essentially. The Bible says all you have to do is faith or trust. Same Greek word there. Put your trust in Jesus and you have God's favor. The legalism says, yeah, that's good. That's pretty good. But, you know, doing this command... You know, dressing up really nice, you know, not drinking alcohol or drinking alcohol, whatever it is, speaking in tongues, being part of a particular political party, that makes you a real Christian. Like that's really, like, like, if you really want to kind of go to the next level and really be a real Christian, that's what you got to do. It's <sighs> Deadly. How does this work? I want to look at two examples of how you kind of get to the point where legalism starts winning win in the battle. I want to look at two examples side by side here. Because legalism usually starts with good intentions. So let's say, you know, you choose to abstain from alcohol. Alright, because it causes you to sin. Now alcohol is a gray area in the Bible. It seems like there's some freedom there. But you choose to abstain from it because... Causes you to sin, which is good. Jesus says, if something causes you to sin, sin, what? Cut it off, gouge it out, right? So far, so good. You also decide that you're going to wake up every morning early, and have a 30-minute quiet time with God. So, which is also a good thing. It's a great discipline to further experience God's love and power. You decide you're going to wake up every morning to experience that through reading His Word and through prayer. All right, great discipline to grow closer to the lord. No doubt. All right, so far so good. So these are your two two works. But along the way, abstaining from alcohol, practicing these quiet times, waking up every morning. You have your good days, but you have your hard days, right? Where you just want to indulge in one and just start start skipping the other, All right? Sleep in. But you 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 trudge along, right? You do it. You manage to keep going and going. You carry on. And then one day though, you're talking with another Christian. Alright, you're talking to a, someone who calls himself a Christian. They're sipping, a, sipping on a glass of wine. Alright, and it's pretty clear, you know, from things they've said, they're not having a regular quiet time. Alright. Here's where the critical moment comes in. Most of us, because we have worked, because we have endured, even during the hard times, We think, why should they also not have to endure? Why should they also not have to work hard and carry on? Do you see what happens here? You've worked hard. And now, it's being used to compare yourself with someone else. Pride. To look at someone else in light of what you're doing. Judgment. And here's where the nastiness of legalism comes in, friends. And it is nasty. Right? We forget the reason why we started both of these things, why we started both disciplines. It was to grow closer to Jesus because he so loved us. But it's become something much worse and much more twisted. More importantly, you deny Christ's justification and you start living from the my works column. Important point here legalism is not I want to make this very clear legalism is not abstaining from drinking or having a regimented quiet time every day it's relying on those works to justify you and others rather than as a grateful response to a gift right it's relying on those things man I got to do it to get right with God they need to do it to get right with God. Rather than saying, No, I want to do this because I love, God has so loved me. A grateful response to the gift God's given you in justification. Friends, justification communicates this truth God cannot love me any more or any less. Through Jesus, God cannot love me. Any more any less. Say it with me here. Come on. God cannot love me any more or any less. Say it to a neighbor on your row. This will be fun. Come on. That was, lovely. that was lovely. I hope you all chewed gum before you said that. I know that could be awkward. <laughs> but look. A Christian's, a Christian's portfolio must never be diversified. It's all his righteousness credited to our account. And believe it or not, it's this reality that frees us to take bold risks for Jesus and to walk out with regular acts of faith for Jesus on a day-to-day basis. Because we know, man, God loves me. No more, no less, based on what I did yesterday based on what I did two hours ago, based on what I did a minute ago. How do I know if legalism is winning the battle? i want to give you just three quick ways. One, you're more conscious of your past sin than with the person and finished work of Christ. What you think about, what consumes your thoughts, is the past. Oh, I should have done that. You know the feeling, right? You're there, you're brushing your teeth at night, maybe throwing a little oil of on your face, some scrub or whatever, right? And you're thinking oh, I can't believe I did that. And you just can't let it go. It's legalism. It sounds like you're being good and tough on yourself. Like, oh yeah, I'm being tough. But what are you relying on? You're relying on your works to justify you. Number two, your life lacks gratitude. I'm not going to say an attitude of gratitude. I refuse to say that. But your life lacks gratitude. All right? It's all complaining, anger, or just a silent resignation because your works aren't achieving your goal. What's usually our goal if we're honest with ourselves? You know, being a little better person. Be a little more acceptable before God. And your works can never achieve that. And so it causes us to man to be frustrated, be bitter, angry. Condemnation is a result of focusing, friends, on our deficiency. Whereas gratitude comes as a result of focusing on His sufficiency. It's the natural response to God's grace, to His justifying us. Gratitude. Thankfulness. Do you have any in your life? I've got to ask myself this question all the time. Thirdly, how do I know if legalism is winning the battle? When you look at the column on the left... And you walk away feeling either rather pleased with yourself or quite frustrated. You know that you're still relying on your works. Friends, if legalism is winning the battle in your life, and man, it's a powerful battle. It's a powerful weapon, legalism. If legalism is winning the battle, change your diet. Consider, meditate, feed on God's full and permanent justification of sinners. Consider how Jesus has credited his works to your account. How he endured the judgment that we deserve to fulfill all justice. Not just love, but justice. So that we might know God and be in fellowship with him forever. We've heard it. You've heard it probably a hundred times. A thousand times for many of us. But some of us are still living in that works column, aren't we? If we're honest with ourselves. The 17th century French mathematician and Christian, Blaise Pascal, who died way too young, once said, there are two kinds of men. The righteous who believe themselves sinners and sinners who believe themselves righteous. Which kind of person are you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us be honest with ourselves this morning. For those of us here who have long, for our entire lives thought, you know, I'm going to rely on being a good person. I'm going to rely on my works. Help us see and compare to the works of Jesus who fulfilled the whole law where we couldn't. Most of us haven't even read the whole law. Help us see The glorious reality that He is offering us His works credited to our account before the living God. All we have to do is trust, like Abraham, faith in Jesus. But Lord, for those of us who've lived the Christian life, we've instilled certain disciplines or other people have told us, you need to do this, you need to do that, and we bought into it. And it's caused a disease of legalism in us. Lord, we're, we're honest. We think, man, why isn't someone else doing this? Why aren't others doing this? Or, or why doesn't this work? And I'm in despair. Lord, remind us of this truth that you endured judgment for us. And that as a result, because of your great love, passionate love, you cannot love us any more or any less based on what we do. Help us consider that for our life because it will change our lives. It will change our attitude towards others. It will change our disposition, our thankfulness, the way we relate to people. All because of this word, justification. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.